You are listening to Speak Free Radio, the free speech internet radio platform. Thank you. 
Secretary, I think that your performance is despicable. And I think the fact that you are not willing to provide answers to this committee is absolutely atrocious. Mr. Chairman, may I? Like, if you'd like to have a, a minute to respond, you will. Oh, I, I would, and I'm not sure I'll limit it to 60 seconds. That's fine. Number one, uh, what I found despicable is the implication uh, that uh, this language, tremendously odious, um, uh, actually, it could be emblematic of the sentiments of the 260,000 men and women of the Department of Homeland Security, number one. Number two, uh, Senator Hawley takes an adversarial approach to me in this question, and perhaps he doesn't know my own background. Perhaps he does not know that I am the child of a Holocaust survivor. Oy vey, a Holocaust perhaps he does not know that my mother lost almost all her family but she kept the diamonds at the hands the of the Nazis. And so I find his adversarial tone to be entirely misplaced. I find it to be disrespectful of me and my heritage. And I do not expect an apology, but I did want to say what I just articulated. That's a lie. You're a liar. And that's enough to get me That's enough to get to the boiling point, yeah! And our leaders are low-life scum that screw little girls so the Jews can screw America. That's what's happening in this country. I just said it. That's what's going on in this country. And our FBI is corrupt. The Supreme Court is corrupt. The Justice Department is corrupt. The news media is corrupt. The whole country is corrupt. Because we've walked away from Almighty God and we've allowed Kabbalah practicing Jews to defile the nation. Like a filthy horse We're living in the system We young born And they know you never listen Cause you're watching porn They gotta keep you stupid And misinformed Here's some wise advice I won't say it twice No thanks, no niggas No kiss ass wiggers We go hard Don't give me a lame excuse We're overdue We gotta deal with the greedy Jew Cause if you think about it Man, they own the news And that is something We cannot afford to lose Yo, I 
was a first class prankster Taking on Jews like a rhyming gangster Man of mystery, I know the history Hitler, he said it, the Jews are parasites A red wine can be for the Bible, the Bible uh -huh. A red the cheese were gonna screw us all Now pay close attention, we'll be aware Cause if you don't, we'll make your life to our bed We said For the Jewish folks, six million lies on a hall of hoax. There was no gas, and the Jews are laughing. They think you're stupid like a bunch of goats. Are they doing better now in the Middle East? All they see is war, never any peace. Do you think that they care for a ceasefire? No, they shoot everything like a retard. We know we've never been the wisest or smartest, but we realize what it takes. We got control of your banks and your money, so you gotta do what we say. It's a feeling you get when the Jew says to you that you're running out of time, that you're racist too, like Barbara Spector, genocide lecture. She's a wicked bitch and the Jews respect her. White people deserve a place to live and a future. Gullible white Protestant Bible belters will plug into conservative ink and be convinced to abandon their own families by the Zionist funding that hates them. We will need to spend their tax dollars to annually bring illegal immigrants to storm our institutions and turn our progeny into the useful idiotic communist homosexuals that we see today. Leaving behind only suffering, death, poverty, and a world raped of its resources, alienated from the cross. Whenever any of us point out the paper trail funding behind organizations dedicated to causing societal destabilization in the West, we are immediately smeared as anti-Semitic Nazis and find ourselves in a situation where the judge and perpetrator are one and the same. It is the greatest showcase of being a protected class when you can exercise both the power of being the aggressor and the power of being the victim, utilizing the sword of critical theory and the shield of political correctness. Because if you want to know who controls you, look at who you're not allowed to criticize. In other words, lying to your face about crimes against Jews and blaming white people. And you Trump Tar boomers love eating that shit up, don't you? So while hundreds of thousands of unreported white murders can continue along the southern border. Let's continue to keep sending our own children off to war in the Middle East with zero benefit, pretending there is no manipulation or agenda by the fully controlled Zionist media getting orally asphyxiated by the establishment right. But until the next one, my boys, shalom. Why don't we put white people on island so that we'd reduce their population? Here's the thing though, it would quickly become the best island and then all you guys would just want to come to it. <laughs> That's white America? Wake the fuck up. White America, wake the fuck up. Welcome to episode number 206 of the Sane Asylum, the Hump Day edition. Wednesday already. Happy Hump Day. And uh, I'm your host, Giuseppe Vafangulo. And uh, some with clearance far above top secret, call me the G-Man. All right. Got it. Uh... A great guest today. He hasn't been on for a while, but it's John Massaro, 
who wrote uh, Will the Quaxines Be the End of Saul, which is the intent of the synagogue of Satan, to be sure. But John's old school, so I need to actually set up a sharing between Skype and uh, StreamYard so I can uh, call John on his landline. How about that? We're going old school today, a landline. Um, But that's cool. What did I just do? That's dumb. I got rid of the wrong one. All right. So while I'm doing that, I'm going to have to multitask, and I'm going to bring up what a despicable, lying piece of shit that Kike Majorcus is. He has opened up the southern border, implementing the Kudenhov Kalergi plan, uh, which is the Jews flooding uh, the uh, first world European countries with the mudbloods. And it is so disgusting to me that the cowards, you know, uh, in Congress couldn't impeach this vile kike. I mean, if ever there was someone who deserved to be impeached and uh, thrown out of this government, it's this piece of shit Mayorkas, this traitorous kike. But at least we can't, we can't, um, there's no, there's only cowards in the um, in the Congress because they they like to rape the little boys and girls and 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 uh, so that's why the Jews has have the pictures of it in the video. But what we can do is sentence the kike trader Mayorkas to the firing squad. Here we go. This one's for you, Northern Nevada, Paul. Ready? Aim. All right, so that is very cool. I like like Paul's idea of um, of uh, using the firing squad. Okay, so now everything's set up. Let's. It's funny when I was a little boy in the in Milwaukee in the '60s. I used to. I was going to Catholic school, and I always wanted to get out of there because I, I really loathed it. And so I'd walk home for lunch, and on the lunch was always this TV show with these Milwaukee locals named Howard and Rosemary Garnett, a husband and wife. Howie was also the uh, the weatherman for many years. And uh, so they had their show called Dialing for Dollars, and they'd call people and they'd give them like 100 bucks or something if they could answer a question. Man, I'll tell you, life was so much better when I was a kid. Even though the Jews controlled a lot, they feared... Up, oh, that's bad. One of those numbers didn't go through. Let's do this again. All right. And so um, uh, it's so funny how in literally my lifetime going, you know, 50, 60 years ago, you, this was such a, a good country, high trust society, 90 plus percent white in Milwaukee, 90 plus percent white in California and most of the country. And it's too bad one of the things we do when not if when whites take back power and uh, we have a a fascist government that uh, takes care of business with the homos and the jews and the the uh, violent low impulse blacks and mestizo indians one of the things we got to do is uh is hold all those traitors and idiots accountable especially those stupid weak-minded liberals who believe the lies of the kike jacob javits and the other 
uh, vile Jews who uh, said, oh, it won't change the, the, the percentage of whites in the United States, no. And so clowns like Eugene McCarthy and, and George McGovern, oh, okay, sounds great. Hey, we, we love everybody. We're liberal, you know, kumbaya, kumbaya. And so uh, look what we have today now. It's unbelievable. In just my lifetime. All right, so we're calling. We're dialing for uh, dollars. Let's see if we Hey, Giuseppe. Hello, Mr. John Massaro. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Are we on right now? Are we on the air? We are live, sir. We are live. Okay, very good. How are you? I am, I'm doing well. So the first thing I want to do is uh, bring up your website so everybody can see it and the shot. And your book is just a fantastic uh, initiative. So end uh, the shots, plural. My bad. Uh, yeah, end the shots.com. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And there it is. It's up on the screen. So uh, I know we want to talk a lot about your travels, especially how it relates to the insanity of these Satanists, these globalists trying to start World War III. And you've been to 97 countries, and you've seen so much. But first, let's talk about, you know, you wrote this book several years ago. You, you saw what was coming. And what's your take now, uh, you know, they're trying to sweep this whole uh, Jubonic Jujab genocide initiative, depopulation initiative, under the rug. And yet it's stunning to me how many young people, middle-aged people, are dying of terrible cancers, dying of these bizarre half-living half material, half-whatever clots and all that. It's just, it's just insane. And you called it all. So what's your take on it now, the state of quaxination and the state of normies and sheeple actually being willing to take these death jabs? Well, I, I don't. I, I think the enthusiasm for it has really uh, tailed off a lot. I, I don't think there are many people getting any more boosters. Um, I think a lot of people are really skeptical. Well, there are some. You know, some, once in a while I go on Rents.com, and he says there are still people lining up. Well, not lining up, but showing up at Rite Aid and CVS and getting their boosters. Uh, but I, personally, I don't know anybody who. Although my social circle is pretty small. But I don't know anybody who's uh, who's too enthusiastic about the shots anymore. And I don't I don't know if you realize this. In New York State, we have you know this 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 monster Kathy, Governor Kathy Hochul. Hochul, what a psychopath! Hochul. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah, there's something going on right now. Um, there's a lawsuit. Um, you know, Cuomo, who is a horrible who is a horrible creature as well. He. Oh my God! Absolutely. The, yep. he, yeah, um, thank God he's out. But this woman is, is if anything, I think she's worse. Yep. And there is, there's something on the table right now about, uh, there's a lawsuit going on uh, giving that would give her the right or the attorney general the right or any uh, public health official in the state to, um, <laughs> to put anybody who, who object, you know, if they can declare any kind of health emergency and put anybody in a quarantine camp. So are you aware of that? I am aware of that. It's so it's so vile. It's so beyond the pale of what this country was based upon with the Constitution and individual rights and God-given natural rights and natural law that these these Satanists, these Luciferians have they're a cancer who's eaten so far into power, the corridors of power that this this is tolerated. I mean, my God, it's absolutely vile. Yeah, you know, it, it was struck down. There was a good judge in the Rochester. He struck it down, I think. In, well, that's uh, good. Yeah, that's good. But then, then uh, Hochul and 
this horrible attorney general, Letitia James, uh, she, you know, she's a, a Soros appointee. She's a black, really yeah, radical, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, she's an affirmative they, action appointee. Yeah, yeah just a, a horrible person. And yeah. she was, uh, they sued to, to overturn it. And uh, there was a very brave, she's a conservative woman, you know, kind of a, you know, very weak tea conservative. Her name is uh, uh, Bobby Ann Cox down in Westchester County. Mm-hmm. And she took this upon herself to, to fight this thing. And, uh, and she showed up in, in Rochester, uh, what was it, last year, in September. And, um, you know, and there were a lot of local people that she had huge, you know, grassroots support. And she went in front of a, uh, you know, she, she presented her case in front of a five-judge uh, <clears throat> five um, appeal panel. And, um, and then they, they voted to, on some kind of ridiculous technicality, they, uh, they said that, yeah, uh, Hochul and James had the right to do this. So now it's, uh, you know, and it, it was just, it was terrible, terrible news. So now I think it's just waiting, now it's gone to the highest appellate court in the state and they're just waiting for a decision to see uh you know what will come of it so that's where we stand right now in new york state but um you know i'm up here in the boonies in upstate new york and i can tell you you know most you know i don't really socialize with that many people but people you know people need to differentiate when they hear new york and they figure it's everything is new york city no it's not like that at all there are a lot of good people upstate you know conservative in the best in the best meaning of that word but you know Mm -hmm. It's kind of like Trump country, but that you know it is, it is what it is. But uh, right. so that's that's where we stand in New York right now. But um, yeah, it's uh, I don't know if you, are you familiar with the, the uh, website howbadismybatch dot com. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, uh, that's probably the best. That's my best go to uh, you know website as far as everything that's going on with this this horrible shot. So there it is, right there. How bad is my batch? <clears throat> now, um, if the no doubt. I mean, it, John, isn't it weird that the state of New York, the state of California, the state of Massachusetts, the state of Illinois are literally just functioning communist fiefdoms now? I mean, it's just bizarre to me that there's so many people, like I remember over the years, California voted down all that nonsense, you know, with these various propositions to try to uh, retain sanity in, in the state, and then they were always overruled by the corrupt communist uh, California Supreme Court, and you look at what's going on, it, like you just described in New York, the insanity of what's going on in Illinois and Massachusetts as well. I mean, those are the 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 four big states that just exemplify this ridiculous uh, de-evolution of a democratic uh, uh, state that was dedicated to the workers and the working class and the lower middle class that has de-evolved into this totalitarian uh, corporate. Uh, vassal state it's so bizarre to me globalist state as well because they're dealing the mayors and the governors are dealing directly with soros and the world economic forum types and it's just unbelievable how can people be so stupid in those states to allow this to have occurred john yeah i don't i don't know i i don't don't vote so i I imagine a lot of the good people in this state and there are a lot of good people um you know like i said basically conservative you know although we know what, what conservatism is pretty dead these days but uh, yeah right but you know they i guess the kind of people that that go out and vote are the worst kinds and that's why we have in albany we have really horrible just horrible people in, in albany and of course new york city is uh 
you know, I don't need to, that New York City needs no introduction. You know, the funny thing is, once in a while I go down to Long Island, that's where I grew up, mm-hmm. you know, to visit family and stuff, and I, I just feel like taking the train in, it's very easy to, you know, jump on a train, it's, it's you, know, uh, you know, half an hour, an hour, depending on where you, where you are. I just want to take one last look at that shithole, you know, just, just, to, 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 just to finish it off, you know, I, I just, I want to see what it's like these days. I mean, the last time I was there was about four years ago. Of course, it's always been a, a really horrible place but um, you know from what I understand now from people I've spoken to that that work there I mean there's just so many homeless people and it's really gotten uh, you know I, I don't know how dangerous it is I, I you know I'll say this I you know when I was younger I, I went to the city quite a bit you know just for this and that see a show uh, see a sports a sporting event uh, whatever you know and it wasn't you know if you walk around and 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 you know where there's a lot of people in the daytime, you know, it, I never really felt, you know, scared or anything like that. I mean, although you're always you're you're always seeing crazy stuff, right. no matter what happens. You know, <clears throat> just some nut just throwing. Last time I was there, I just saw some some jerk picking stuff. I think it was a white guy actually, uh, it just t- pulling stuff out of a garbage can and throwing it in the street and yelling. So you're always seeing some kind of dysfunctional people. Right, right. But, uh, you know, as long as you walk around, I, again, I, I haven't been there in four years, but, um, you know, i got to say this. Once you walk, if you walk down, and I, I haven't taken the subway in 30 years, but as soon as you walk down the steps in the subway station, then everything changes. Now right. you're walking into the African jungle. Everything, yep. you know, now it becomes, now your blood pressure goes up because you know there's a pretty good chance you're going to see some kind of dysfunctional Negro Right, walking around, you know, it just gets scary. So oh, I yeah. stay the hell away. I haven't been on the subway in thirty years, and um, so that's that. Uh, you know, maybe I'll take, I'll go in one more time and take who one last look at you? it. Who can blame you? I mean, seriously, who <laughs> can blame you? And you know what's yeah. really weird is with in the intro, which I don't think you were able to hear because uh, uh, we're calling your landline. I played a couple of clips of the traitorous Jew, um, Cuban Jew, Mayorkas, who is literally just opened our border like it's uh, a great mo- gate on a moat, right? And everybody's welcome, come on in. And then he has the audacity to lie about it, and then he went, I don't know if you caught it last week, he was being grilled by a couple of uh, truly conservative Republican um, Republican uh, Congress critters, and then he played the victim card that, I'm a Holocaust survivor, and my mother put diamonds in her pooper and you know all these lies and this ridiculous nonsense yeah i caught that i caught that and you know these there, con- were, there were too many of them that were uh, probably pictures of them with little boys and girls fornicating so they didn't vote to impeach him if ever there was a traitor who deserved to be impeached it's what this guy has done i mean i mean your thoughts you know these congressional hearings are just a joke even though you know i think I, who was the guy who grilled was it thomas massey Hawley, I, I don't Hawley, know. Josh Hawley. Oh, Hawley, yeah, he's a, he, he, I don't think very much of him. You know, yeah, like exactly. Even, yeah. even a good guy like Thomas Massey, uh, uh, I think, you know, he's probably the best there is, which isn't saying a whole lot. Exactly. But these free, yeah. these goddamn congressional hearings, nothing ever gets done. You know, they had, nothing, no, no. They had hearings on, on uh, Thimerosal and, and, you know, causing autism like 25 years ago. Right. You know, and what the hell, nothing ever gets done, you know? No. So, I mean, Congress is just... Even though there are a handful of halfway decent people in it, um, you know, no, it's just it's just a waste. The whole the whole system is just it's just crashing down. So I have, uh, 
you know, I think the future of this country, as far as Mayorkas goes, you know, yeah. I mean, this is this is this is war. I mean, he's yeah, just absolutely. These people coming in are all, you know, I, I would say ninety-five percent of them are young males. You know, China, none, all of them non-white. You know, Chinese, Haitian, right? Um, you know, from the Middle East. I mean, you know, it's just it, it's. Uh, he's, I don't know what it's coming to, but you know, sooner or later, I think it's going to be, you know, literal war. I mean, uh, you know, once. It, you know, I, I think to myself, you know, where I am, you know, I don't, you don't see these people coming in, but, you know, it's going to reach the point. What, what are these, what are the local cops and the local sheriffs? Who, I think most of the lo- local county sheriffs up here and, and throughout, throughout America, really, in the rural areas, I think they're pretty good guys. But what are they going to do when these buses just start showing up in these little towns everywhere and uh, just start dropping these people off? Well, you're and, even starting to see it saturate to... Over, over, you know, to use the metaphor of uh, heavy rains, the uh, Texas and some of these other states, Florida, are sending up so many of these illegal alien invaders to New York, to Boston, to D.C. that uh, even uh, uh, the mayor, Step and Fetch It Adams, is is complaining now. What we, we don't, we can't take any more. And yet they're the ones who set them their 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 shithole cities up as sanctuary cities. So it's like you wanted this. And you, you're, you're, you're part, you're part of this globalist traitor cabal. So deal with it, right? But I mean, the violence and the insanity that's going on in these cities—it's getting worse by the day, and it's really—it's taken way too long. But finally, it's beginning to radicalize whites. And the only way whites survive this is they take back their heritage, especially the young guys, and become the apex predators that they, they have been in the past. And if not, this country's lost. Yeah, that's what we got to see. I mean, I haven't, again, my social circle is small. I don't really talk to too many people. I don't see, you know, I've heard you say, and, and uh, Dave Gahari and uh, others say that people are finally waking up. You know, I would like to believe that. I hope that's true. But I personally don't see it. I mean, I don't, like, for example, with uh, what's going on in uh, Israel right now. Right. I mean, I, I don't think too many, I don't think many people are very enthusiastic about what's being done to the Palestinians. But right. they're just basically, you know, just brain dead about it. You know, they, they just don't react. I mean, they've just been so dumbed down. And, uh, yes. So, whatever. Yeah, we've got to see what's going to happen. So, um, Well, I think yeah, both I can occur simultaneously. There's great... Uh, swaths of the normie population that just are ostriches with their head in in the sand they still watch fox news or cnn or cnbc or msnbc but those those uh those uh gaslighting propagandist outlets are losing readerships dramatically so they're not having the influence they once did but it's really easy for a lot of people in their small small existence to ignore it but you know even in the rural heartland you're seeing look what was done to minnesota in the last 20 years with sending in all those uh 60 iq somalians and now they they elected uh that goofy uh olan ilan omar whatever her name is and who married her brother to come and when she uh, so Oh my God! Yeah, I know it's, it's really screwed up. So, uh, all right, whatever. I mean, um, 
So you want to get on to my travels now? Yes, I do. I mean, That's a perfect yeah. segue. And, you yeah. know, the, it's interesting. I, when we were talking pre-show yesterday, you mentioned specifically to talk about your visits. And I agree. Let's hear all about Iran and North Korea. But how ironic is it that their so-called axis of evil just happens to coincide with the fact that they do not have a Rothschild Central Bank? That, I think that's very significant, too. And another thing to keep in mind also is that, you know, these countries, especially Iran right now, you know, they're supposed to be our enemies. I don't think Iran has, has uh, attacked another country in more than... It's an ancient country. I don't think they've attacked another country in more than a thousand years. I mean, the Iran-Iraq the Iran war, uh, that was started by Iraq. And Iran, right. uh, from, from everything I know about it, it was strictly defensive on their side. So yeah. these, are, these are very peaceful countries. And uh, as far as Korea... You know, I want to get into that. You know, it's uh, you know, I have a pretty important history lesson to explain to how uh, Korea was split into South and North. But as far as I know, their their entire history, going back thousands of years, they have never attacked another country. Uh, you know, and they can ill afford to because they're hemmed in. You know, you have China. They're, they're right. they have a you know, they're surrounded by very powerful neighbors. I mean, they, they you know the main uh, the biggest neighbor is China. And they share a very small, uh, just a little piece of border with, with Russia, you know, mm -hmm. basically Siberia. And then you have right. Japan, like a few hundred miles away across the sea. So they could, they could ill afford to be, become an aggressive country. And they never have been. You know, and this, this bullshit about North, this North, supposed North Korean threat, I've been hearing that, you know, for about 50 years now, and nothing exactly. ever happens. They never yep. attack anybody else. I want to talk about that. So, um... Yeah, so let me. So, just, what was you know, it like? Tell tell the listeners and the viewers what it was like. So, you you love to travel, and you have traveled to ninety seven different countries, which is a lot. I mean, seriously. So, what was it like to be able to, as a white American male, get to go and travel to uh, North Korea? How, what, was it a hassle? How, how did it work? How did you go about it? Well, you know what, Giuseppe. Before I start anything, what I want to do is I just want to read a quote from it. Uh, George Orwell's 1984, and the older I get, I'm 70 years old now, the older I get, the more I, I realize just how prophetic he was, just how right. great this, this book is. And yep. there's a funny thing, I still have my copy from high school, it's, it's a paperback copy, it's uh, falling apart, it's like 55 years old. Right. But this is just, I want everybody to keep this in mind. Uh, he, you know, there's so, many, so, much important, so many important things that, he's, that he wrote. I just want to read like two cents, two or three sentences here. Go for it. All right. This is, uh, he says, the average citizens of Oceania, and, and you could compare that to the U.S. today, the average citizens of Oceania never set eyes on a citizen of either Eurasia or East Asia, and he has forbidden the knowledge of foreign languages. Now, here's the important part. If he were allowed contact with foreigners, he would discover that they are creatures similar to himself and that most of what he has been told about them is lies. The sealed world in which he lives would be broken, and the fear, hatred, and self-righteousness on which his, his morale depends might evaporate. So, you know, that says so much. I mean, you go to these countries, and you find out that people are, are you know, are very much like, the, you know, like you and me, and, and, and ordinary people. You know, they, they, they just want to be left alone. They don't want war. You know, they just love their family and their friends. 
you know, and, and they're just ordinary people. They're just ordinary people like, like everywhere else, no matter what kind of government they have. You know, I want to talk about that a little bit. So, yeah, um, uh, but first, let's hear about what did it take to get to go as a white American male to North Korea? Because I've all right, I've, if you want, yeah, go ahead. Uh, all right, I, I actually I wanted to start with Iran first, but that's okay. We, oh no, okay, no, know. let's do Iran first. What, whatever is best for you. All right, let me let me just explain too. You know, when I my travels, I was uh, I'm I, I'm coming kind of like from a unique place because I'm blue collar. I'm a retired oil truck driver. I, I drove oil for for many years on Long Island. I drove propane. Connecticut mm-hmm. for a few years. So I'm basically a down-to-earth blue-collar guy, and, and not many, you know, I, in my travels, I would say, uh, altogether, if you put everything together, it would be about three years, a cumulative total of my travels uh, in foreign countries. Mm-hmm. You know, and I met hundreds and hundreds of travelers, and very, very few are, are they're mostly professional people. They're not real, they're not the kind of people that would tune into your program, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> right. They're very, they're kind of liberal and politic, politically correct. Yeah, so I'm yeah. kind of, I did meet one, I remember one guy in particular, he was a sheep farmer, he was from New Zealand. He was the kind of guy I could let my hair down, and we could, we could talk, we could talk uh-huh. crude. Yes, but, but, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know, not that I'm blowing my horn or anything, but I'm, I'm kind of unique in that way. Um, so, um, and, and my job as an oil truck driver, that gave me the opportunity because, you know, home heating oil, so in the summer months, uh, things got very, very quiet. They, they went dead. So I, could, I was sure. able to take entire summers off. This is basically in the 1980s. That was my big decade of travel. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was, I was able to um, <clears throat> take entire summers off and just, you know, do what I wanted to do. And, and I always did it very fruit. You know, some of the, you know, much of the third world, it's incredibly cheap. So right. it was, um, you know, it, 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 was, it, it cost maybe half as much to travel there as it would as, as it would be just to stay home and pay rent and and uh my bills and stuff so you know people think you have to have a lot of money to travel you really don't so um you know i just did it i did it very at ground level i would say 80 percent of my travels were alone um the other 20 percent you know uh occasionally i joined like a small group adventure type you know um a very basic kind of kind of group to small group tours you know, in places that were really, really difficult to do on your own. Right. So, um, so that's what I did, and I did travel. Then, you know, from when I, when, you know, after I got married, I had my kids, a lot of problems, divorce. Uh, that so there was like a, a ten-year dry spell. Uh, then, uh, in the last twenty years, I've also I've, I've gone back to traveling, not as much as I used to in the eighties. So, um, and that's when I went to Iran and North Korea. I was in Iran in twenty sixteen and North Korea in twenty thirteen. So. Um, all right, let me just talk, let me just start off with Iran then. Um, <clears throat> and by the way, you could just jump in and ask a question anytime. Okay. Um, yeah. So, first of all, I have to say this: it was going to Iran was about the most difficult. Um, you know, I needed a visa, and for a lot of countries I had traveled to, especially in Africa, some countries in Asia, uh, you have to get a visa, which is basically um, I don't know if you have applied for a visa before. It's just basically just a way of some of these these government's getting money you know they cost anything from like 20 usually from anything from like 20 bucks to 150 bucks mm-hmm. and it's basically you just fill out an application to just ask you some questions so when it came time to go into iran and i had to do that with a group because because they didn't know they did not allow americans or british uh, independent travel so i had to go with a group and um it was very difficult getting a visa i mean the uh they they basically wanted to know my life story 
Sure. So, um, you know, and it usually takes like two or three days to get one. Um, you know, with them, it took, it took about two months, you know, and there <laughs> I didn't, I didn't even get my, and I could, there's no Iranian embassy in Washington, so I had to go through the Iranian intersection of the Pakistani embassy. So, um, you know, so was the, this real, was in the, in the 1980s, um, to no, clarify? Oh, no, no, no. No, I went to Iran in 2016. Oh, 2016, okay, so just a few, yeah. seven years. Eight, eight, eight years, years ago. ago, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, you know, so that was that. So I flew on, um, I flew from New York to... Dubai in the because uh, there's no flights from uh, you know from the states to Iran, you know we don't deal with terrorist countries and all that bullshit. Right, so right. Um, yeah, so I flew to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and uh, from there I, I I I had a connecting flight to um, not to Tehran, not to the capital. We started off in Shiraz, which is a small city in um, in Iran. It was an eight day trip. It was a very small group. It was like eight people, and. Um, you know, right away, I and it was very restrictive. I mean, I had to show up on us on that certain flight. Everything is, was coded. You know, when I got the passport control in the at the airport in Shiraz, small, very small, pleasant airport. And um, you know, I gave the guy my passport, and uh, he's punching in all these numbers. Everything is coded on my visa. You know, and I'm thinking, well, come on, it's taking a long time. So finally, he just hands my my passport back, and he says, "Welcome to Iran." You know, very warm welcome. And I joined up with the group in Shiraz, and um, and that's where we started. And um, and there is just, um, you know, people aren't gonna aren't. It's it'll be hard for some of your listeners to believe how how warm how what a warm welcome Americans got, and really every everybody else. But it seemed I was like the only American in the group. There were eight people, eight or nine people, and. Um, you know, everywhere I went, you know, people would ask, where, you know, where are you from? So I would say, you know, I'm from the U- USA. Ah, USA, welcome. You know, and shake my hand. And um, by the way, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know. Have you ever heard of Rick Steves by any chance? You mean Rick Stevens, the PBS guy who does all the travel shows? No, yes, not Stevens. Steves, S-T. I don't even know if he's on PBR. S-T-E-V-E-S. Um, you know, he's written a lot of, uh, he's like a really travel guru for people who want to travel on their own, mostly Europe. But he did go to Iran um, before I did. And he, all you have to do is punch in Rick Steves Iran. And um, and he was, and he's totally non-political, you know. And if anything, he's like slightly biased, uh, you know, in favor, you know, against the government over there, but not really. Uh-huh. But he... But if you if you go on his uh, you know if you punch in his name, S T E V E S Rick Steves Iran, um, you'll see. I mean, he he just he was just warmly welcomed everywhere, and uh, he talked to a lot of people. Um, actually, this morning, just in preparation for this program, I I punched up a video. I hadn't seen it before. It's like an hour long, and I just looked at it for a few minutes, and you can see he's talking to people there, um, you know, about what life is like there and everything, and. Um, you know, basically, it's it's just a very very nice country, and um, and just to show you, uh, you know, just what it, what it's like. I mean, the first we had a, a tour guide. I think his name was Hisham, and um, we would ride around on the bus. It was just you know we had a whole big bus to ourselves. You know, first we had a look at Shiraz, which was very interesting, an old town. We went to we went to some interesting places. We went to Shiraz. Isfahan, which is a really, really beautiful city. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to Persepolis with, with all the ruins and stuff. 
And then we stopped at a town called Kashan. And then the last day we were in Tehran. And, you know, Tehran is the capital, and that's pretty much what most people just he- only hear about. It's just a huge city. Not really, I didn't think it was that interesting. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, just, just to give you an idea what um, what it's like there, I mean, you know, first of all, it's supposed to be an Islamic country, and of course it is. But most people I found were very, you know, I was talking to Hasham about this. You know, I, t- I told him, you know, we were riding around a bit on the bus. You know, I had the front seat. He was talking to the driver. So I said, can I sit down next to you? You know, I just have a lot of questions. He said, sure. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I just asked him a lot of things. And, um, you know, he said most people are, like, very not religious at all. Um, you know, and the thing about women, you know, they do have a couple of laws that I don't agree with. You know, it basically, it's a, it's a very free country. Uh, they don't have, um, there is a ban on alcohol. Of course, I didn't like that. I like to have my IPA and my Pinot Grigio at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, and the women really don't like that the head covering bit. You know, the adult women have to wear the head covering in public. But aside from that, you know, and the funny thing was, too, he said, you know, it, listen, he said, as far as alcohol goes, he said, you know, if you want it, you can get it. He said it's smuggled in from neighboring countries all the time. It's not, and if right. you get caught, it's not a big deal. And uh, like I said, the, the people don't like, um, the women don't like the head covering bit. But they just kind of put up with it. So there is a little, there is a little uh, antagonism between the government and the people. But um, and, and I'll give you an example. This is a. Uh, I, I, did you ever see that? There used to be a big mural on one of the tall buildings in Tehran showing a an American flag, except that the stars it was like up, it was like not upside down, but like sideways. And instead of the fifty stars, there were like nine skulls. And the stripes, at the bottom of the stripes, there were like bombs dropping. It was yeah, a very famous. Mm-hmm. You've yeah. seen that, yeah. Okay, we didn't see, I didn't see that. I think, they, I, think, I think they got rid of that in Tehran. But anyway, we did go to visit. Um, it was kind of a historical thing. It was like a, a religious building, and it was a big courtyard with people walking around. And outside of the entrance to the courtyard, there was a sign uh, that said, Down with Israel, uh, Down with America, Down with Israel. <laughs> you know, and I was kind of a little stunned to see that. So I asked Hashem, I said, I said, can I take a picture of that? And, you know, I, I'll never forget the way he reacted. He just, he kind of winced. And, and he just said, the people don't like it. You know, and I got the, I had the feeling that he thought that he was really trying to say, look, I don't want you to t- take a picture of, the, of my country and going back home and think, and people thinking that this is representative mm-hmm. of how the people feel. So, you know, and I didn't, you know, just out of respect, I didn't take a picture of it. But it was kind of um, interesting to see that. And I will say, also, I saw one other thing. At the end of my trip, uh, when I was taking a taxi from, the, from uh, Tehran to the airport, I, I, like on an overhead, um, you know, like one of those overhead uh, signposts that, that cross the highway, mm-hmm. I see an American flag in the distance. And... Um, and then when I, as I get, as I'm saying, what's this? They're putting an American flag up. Then when I got closer, I could see the stripes were made out to be like matchsticks. So, um, <laughs> you know, so there is there is that kind of propaganda. And again, like what he told me is the people don't like it. Um, so you know, but as far you know, what people have to realize, you know, so many people say. So many ignorant people. I've heard this so many times. You know, oh, they hate Americans. You know what? Let me tell you. I've been all over the world. Nobody hates Americans. I mean, they do hate the government. They, they, they do hate and fear the military and the government, you know, for very good reasons. 
you know, I'm sure you can agree with that. But as far as, you know, ordinary people, you know, if they if they have a good attitude and they show respect, nobody hates ordinary Americans. I mean, it, that's such a bunch of crap. So, um, so yeah. Uh, um, well, let me ask you a question. Thing, now, sure. um, back in the um, 60s and 70s, Iran was essentially a first world country. You know, they, they, they it, and it was... <laughs> subverted by uh, the CIA in in large part, and then that set off the whole uh, uh, you know action reaction type thing with the uh, fundamentalist um, uh, you know with the Ayatollah Khomeini coming in as the hailed savior, and then the, all this uh, brutal uh, lockdown, and the country went from being a first world country to uh, a, a fundamentalist uh, Muslim country. And did, did did you talk to anybody who talked about those days who was still around? Yeah, I'll tell you, it's funny. It's, a, it's I'm glad you brought that up. You know, um, first of all, you say it used to be a first world country. It still is a first world country. I mean, I imagine way out in the boonies. I mean, maybe if you get closer to the borders with Pakistan and, and uh, Afghanistan, you know, it's a very large country. We didn't go anywhere that that right. far east. So, but it is a first world country. I mean, it was like very. It struck me, the people struck me as being more oriented to Europe than to Asia. Um, and like I said, it was not, yeah, I mean, this, this whole fundamentalist Islamic thing, you know, maybe a very, maybe one-tenth of one percent of the population felt that way. I mean, the people who took hostages, you know, you remember that, 1979, that, that was of the course, big year. Yeah. That they, well, I'm going to tell you a funny story, though. When we got to Isfahan, which, like I said, was a beautiful city, uh, this guy Hesham, who was our tour guide, he had some kind of family emergency, so he had to get back home to Tehran. So we picked up another tour guide, and he was totally different from Hesham. You know, Hesham was like a tall, quiet, sensitive guy, handsome guy. Mm-hmm. And then we pick up this guy Turak, and he was like he was just the opposite. He was like short and bald and funny looking, but and he was about seventy years old. And uh, but he was a, he was a real joke. He was a he was a real fun guy, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, again, like when we were on the bus, you know, I would talk, I would ask him a lot of questions, and he said he cut along for the good old days of, of uh, the Shah, which really surprised me. And he was really he told me he said uh, he thought Ayatollah Khomeini was a monster. You know, and he's saying these things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, he didn't. And he was also talking. He was talking politics also in the lobby at the Isfahan Hotel. You know, obviously he's talking in English, and he yeah. didn't care about. You know, it's basically a free country. They can criticize the government. He didn't care about who was possibly, uh, you know, overhearing what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And he was saying this stuff on the bus, too. You know, he had an Iranian bus driver. I don't think he spoke any English. But, you know, who knows if he, if he was understanding anything he was said. And, you know, he's calling him a monster. Wow. And, um, yeah. So, um, and uh, you know, let me just say this, too. On the way, you know, on the way up from, you know, Tehran was the last stop we made. And um, on the way up, we passed the Ayatollah's tomb, which is like a big, big, uh, mausoleum, you know, mausoleum type. It was a really a big shrine. And, um, you know, as I recall, I think we stopped there, and there were kids, like, playing soccer outside. And, um, you know, like I said, we, did, we didn't really go in and visit, or any, visit the tomb or anything, but it was, it was right alongside the highway, pretty much, the main highway. Anyway, at the end of my trip, when I'm going back down to the airport, I was taking this taxi driver, and he only spoke a few words of English. And um, 
And, you know, I was there in October of 2016. It was just before the U.S. presidential election. And it was big news over there. I remember in the hotel in Tehran, there was a newspaper. There was a bunch of free newspapers on the desk. And, um, you know, of course, everything is written in Arabic script. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, obviously, I don't, I, I don't I had no idea what they were writing about. But I remember seeing a, a color picture of Hillary Clinton and Trump also. So it was big news as far as who was about to be elected. Anyway, the, the, the taxi driver who spoke only like seven or eight words of English, and then he was asking me, Obama good, Obama bad? So I said, bad. He goes, yeah. Because, you know, I, I, if you remember about Obama, he was he kind of the one, maybe the one positive thing you could say about this, the guy was that he was, he was kind of for a thaw in relations between us and uh, Iran. Mm-hmm. You know, he did, yeah. So I guess Obama was popular there. I don't know. Anyway, so I said, uh, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I said Obama bad. So then I then we're passing, you know. Then I asked him. I said, Homeini, good, bad. So he goes, bad. <laughs> and oh, then wow. as we're as we're driving, listen to this. As we're driving, you know, and now we're going the opposite way. We're passing, uh, you know, Homeini's burial place again. You know, it's the big shrine again. It's this time sure. it's on the mm-hmm. left side of the road. He rolls down the rin- window. And he points, he goes, Khomeini, and he spits out the window. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just amazing, these things that you, you know, these ridiculous images we have of everybody being like an Islamic uh, fanatic over there. Right, right, like a jihadist, yeah. yeah. And thinking, yeah, and thinking Khomeini is, you know, know, I'm talking about Ayatollah Khomeini, who's, I don't know, when did he die? He's been gone for about 30 years now, something like that, right? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely, Mm -hmm. So he he is not held in high esteem by a lot of, especially uh, at least the older people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know these are the kind of things you learn when you when you travel. So um, you know another thing was um, I don't. You know again I, I it was not um, I don't uh, have you ever heard I, I, maybe on on uh, YouTube have you ever heard like the sound of the uh, muezzin calling the people to prayer? You yes, know, that, mm-hmm. that's. Yeah. Yeah, it, I love that sound. I love when I go to these. When I've been, you know, I've been to a lot of Islamic countries. I love that sound. It's a, it looks like eerie and exotic. You know, they just that's very apt description. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just it's you, you really know like you're in you know you're in a different kind of civilization, and uh, you know I've heard it many times. I really like it. Uh, but you know what? I didn't hear it once in Iran. I mean that that really. I know I was I kind of missed it. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've heard it like in Morocco, in Syria, Jordan, but I, I never, I, I didn't hear it once. Again, I mean, it's it's like it was a surprisingly secular country. Um, so that that was one thing that really surprised me. Again, maybe it's the way different way out, in, you know, in the boonies and the in the countryside. Uh, but where I was, I, I didn't hear it once. Uh, so. Um, then so, what is your take I, on the uh, the continued aggression, intense aggression of trying the uh, is Israelis, especially the uh, far right psychopaths like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, trying to <coughs> spark off a war with Iran and, and destroy Iran using their uh, their um, uh, golem, um, uh, yeah, the nuclear arsenal. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the United States is I, their go- war golem. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if, if 
I don't know if Netanyahu is, is crazy enough to even try that. I mean, uh, I, I think things are going very bad for Israel right now. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to say this. I, I think, you know, one of the major players in that area, you know, uh, let me say this, too. This is one of the things I jotted down. There's, there's a code of hospitality in that part of the world. I, I was in Turkey in 1984. I absolutely loved it. Uh, I was there for five weeks just traveling around by public bus. Really, really, I, I love Turkey. And I've also been to um, Azerbaijan and uh, Georgia. And I think in that part of the world, and this is really kind of different from the Arab world. I mean, you have to really distinguish these people from the Arabs. Um, there's just a code of hospitality to the foreigner, you know, and the countries I just mentioned. You know, probably Armenia, too, although I never made it to Armenia. But... Um, I think, you know, Turkey, I think, is a huge player in, in what's going on, because I, as far as I know, Turkey, you know, Turkey and Iran, Iran uh, they're good, they've been good neighbors going back many, many years. Right. Uh, they, have, they have very good relations. They share a large border together. Mm-hmm. And I think Tur- and, and Turkey is, could be like the, the linchpin of, you know, if Erdogan, you know, who's the president of, uh, of Turkey, if he pulls out of NATO and... and, uh, and 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 sides with Iran militarily. I mean, I think that could be a huge. Well, he's basically already uh, said that several times as far as supporting uh, the Palestinians, while the the vile Jew uh, pr- uh, tries to wipe them out, and the genocide of, of that uh, native population is just beyond horrific. And and he's come out multiple times and. And uh, it's bizarre. I mean, he literally, Erdogan seems to be talking out of both sides of his mouth. And the one time he's talking about being in NATO and given, finally giving up the thumbs up to, I think it's Sweden to join. And on the other hand, he says he's going to stand with uh, Hezbollah and, and fight the Jew uh, to, to try and save Palestine. So uh, this guy is hard to figure out. I mean, he, he, in, yeah, he's I don't kinda... know if you... Go ahead. He's kind of in a tough spot, you know. I think he's like standing on the fence, you know. Um, yeah. You know, and I'm sure you know people don't want to. You know, I even uh, found this out in Israel. Well, I don't. Really, I don't think we're going to have time to talk about Israel. But I, I was in. I've been to Israel a couple of times, and the second time I was there, uh, I picked. I rented a car for a week, and I picked up about a dozen hitchhiking Israeli soldiers. Soldiers, you know, just to get into their heads. You know, uh-huh. this, this is nineteen. This is nineteen eighty four now. Uh-huh. And mo- you know, most of them. Well, I'm gonna—I'll say at least half, about half of them. They just seem like regular guys, and they had no heart. You know, they didn't want to be in the army. They didn't like their army uh, uh-huh. service. You know, they were just regular guys. They, nobody really wants to go to war. Um, and I think the thing with Erdo- Erdogan right now is that he, you know he must figure that you know regular Turkish people don't really want to um, get involved militarily. You know, it's an easy thing to say. You know they should join forces and, get, and go invade uh, Israel and just just be done with that country. But you know people don't want to do it. Just like today, who the hell wants to get? How many young Americans want to go go to the Middle East? You know. You're right. Um, so um, so I think you know. So to say that, yeah, I mean if if he ever if he would ever join forces militarily with Iran, I mean that could be uh, first of all it would it would really. Throw Washington, Washington, throw the warmongers in Washington for a loop, and, and also, you know, the big warmonger, the big talkers like that soy boy faggot Lindsey Graham, right, right, you know, yeah. and, and Nikki Haley, 
I yep. mean, what, 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 you know, how would they react if all of a sudden Turkey, you know, switches sides and, uh, you know, and, and turns against everything which the traders in Washington are trying to do? So, uh, you know, it, it's very, you know, I don't want to make predictions. I don't know what's going to happen in that part of the world. So, um, you know, and another That's thing, really I, interesting. I mean, I don't know if you caught that a few weeks back when that uh, uh, that slutty little curry monkey uh, Nimrata uh, Sakaka, I think now she changed her name to Nikki Haley, has <laughs> uh, was trying to say it, it, they, they they were all trying to out lick the rectum of the Jew and and Nikki Haley uh, and I, I I was playing it for a couple weeks straight about a month ago. She goes, uh, the United States. Israel doesn't need the United States, but the United States needs Israel. If ever there was a more absurd statement that, I mean, why would we need this satanic, toxic, criminal, uh, fake country? I mean, it, it, and and the fact that we give them billions and and their, uh, I could play a clip, but I can just describe it, of of that they can, Israeli can come here for any type of... Uh, Free medical care, even organ transplants, if they can't do it in Israel, and it's all paid for by the U.S. We pay for everything for those vile kikes. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, it is unbelievable. She's not, she is just beyond. You know, she's unspeakable. I mean, there's nothing yeah. really. You know, yep. there's really nothing more, more to say about it. What, yeah, exactly she made that right. statement. Remember, she made that statement about two or three months ago. But yeah, I. I uh, yeah, she's uh, these 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 pe- people like this, like her and Lindsey Graham. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's nothing, you know, they're beyond, they're beyond the pale. You know, no, another no. thing I want, I want to say about, you know, and this is another thing that makes me believe that Iran, you know, obviously I was there for eight days, mm-hmm. and I did learn a lot from, from uh, you know, my two tour guides, uh, just speaking to them, just, you know, a general overview. And I'm sure there's some discontent in the country. Um, but, you know, everything I could see, I mean, it seemed like a very healthy, progressive country. I mean, and I think the proof of that is you see very, very rarely do, uh, do any, you know, people, the citizens there are free to leave if they want, and very few do. I mean, I, I don't, uh, I, I never hear of, you know, Iranians, you know, maybe, you know, just a handful of traders here and there. But people don't leave the country because it's a nice country. They have their act together, from what I could see. You know, and on that note, too, I know you talk a lot about how pedophiles should be, you know, exterminated, which I yep. totally agree with. Absolutely. And they, 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 you know, they have, you can go on YouTube, there are some, they publicly hang uh, child molesters, drug traffickers, you know, rapists, murderers. You, there's a couple of clips on YouTube, you can watch these people being hanged in public. So that's how they deal with these, you know, that's, that's what a healthy, yep. that's what a healthy country should do. Yep. And, um, you know, on the other hand, I remember when I was talking to Hesham, we were talking, you know, he didn't want to bring up you know, I did. I did like kind of gingerly ask him about the executions in Iran. You know, and I could say again, like he didn't want to really get into that. He didn't want to get into the, um, you know, that kind of angle because he didn't want me going back to the states and saying, you know, they hang everybody. That that sort of thing. But I did ask him about. I he he brought it up. You know, we were talking about alcohol and and I brought up drugs and he said the government. He says for like people, individuals who have a drug problem. You know, the government has, has good programs to try to help them out, mm-hmm. um, you know, to try to get them to kick the habit. But, you know, that's totally different from large-scale drug traffickers. They, they get executed. So, um, yeah, you find out all these little things from talking. You know, he was just a regular guy. Both of them were regular guys. You know, and I asked a lot of questions. And, from, from, again, from what I saw with my own eyes, 
You know, and I'll tell you how nice these people are, too. At the end of my trip, when I was in Tehran, uh, the night before I left, you know, the guy at the, re- the hotel reception had um, arranged a taxi. So I had to get a really early morning taxi, like mm-hmm. 6 in the morning. And I, you know, I said, you know, I'd like to make a couple of phone calls to the States. You know, one thing about me, I don't bring electronics with me when I travel. So, you know, mm-hmm. I just wanted to, I wanted to make two phone calls. I wanted to call my son and my brother just, you know, just to say hi and let them know everything was okay. So I made these two telephone calls at the reception desk in Tehran. You know, I said to him, I said, okay, I said, how much do I owe you? And he said, don't worry about it. Really? You know, just, yeah, just really, really nice. You know, really so hospitable, so so kind that way. You know, you know, I can't, I encountered nothing but kindness from those people. So, um, I did write, you know, on my website, endtheshots dot com. I think you know, I have a, a, you know, there's a few different categories. I have um, travel stories. I have a lot of travel stories, and I have a, a you know, you know we've, we've been talking about Iran a lot. But if people want to go read that. I do. I did write something called Iran: A Journey to a Politically Incorrect Land. So there, there are more right details. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a good read. So um, I think did, did I remember? You know, I gave it to my web guy. If you scroll to the bottom, is there a picture of Rick Steves? There, I don't have it in front of me right now. With Iranian I'm woman. Right now. It's yeah, a yeah. Long article. That's awesome. Some pretty Maybe he pictures. Didn't. Yeah, the one at night. Uh, oh, American behind, travel yeah. writer Rick Steves with. Iranian women, there yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. It's just very, very sweet people. You know, when I, when I think about these people talking about nuking Iran, I, it just makes me totally, it's just totally, uh, I'm totally repelled and, and yeah. dis- disgusted with that kind of attitude. And unfortunately, you'll run across that with some of these conservative idiots, especially these uh, Christian Zionist nut jobs. Yeah, they so, are. Um, they're they're yeah. subhuman. And they uh, they're, 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 they're really like, I mean, the Speaker of the House is one of them, that idiot uh, uh, Johnson. Mike. Yeah, he's a jerk. Yeah, he I know. He really is a fool. Yeah. So, anyway, that's uh, all right. So, um, you know, if you want to get into North Korea now, I don't know. You, know, you want to go into North Korea now? I have a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, any um, one last question about Iran now. Um, do they do they um, much the way in the 1920s the uh, um, you know actual Semitic Jews, actual Semitic Christians, and actual Semitic Muslims all pretty much lived in peace in Palestine, and there are still Iranian Jews who live in Iran, are there not? Yeah, I've read that there are. I mean, I didn't see any, I didn't see any synagogues or anything like that, and I'm sure uh-huh. if there are, they just live. You know, they're probably a very small population, and they live. Uh, they live peacefully with their Iranian neighbors. You know, mm-hmm. but I think, I'm going to say this, I, I'm not sure of this, but I think genetically the Semitic people, um, like the Arabs, are, the Arabs are not, uh, these, these people that I talk about, like in Turkey, Iran, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, I mean, they're not genetically, you know, they might be related to the Arabs somewhat, but I think they're basic, even though, uh, and they don't look a whole lot different, but I don't really think they're the same. I, don't, I think genetically they're different. Mm-hmm. And um, because the Arabs, you know, I don't want, you know, we have so much to talk about. The Arab, I don't really like, you know, I've traveled to eight Arab countries, mm-hmm. and it's not, you, you don't really find that code of hospitality. I mean, right. not that it's dangerous, not that you find fanatics, that's all crap. But, you know, I, I remember going, in most of those countries, they're constantly trying to overcharge you. 
Um, they tend to be kind of rude, you know, not and but not dangerous at all, you know. Just and not not all of them are like that, but but uh, you know, it, I, found, I I I ran into a lot more of that in the Arab countries, and not really none of it in the other countries that I just mentioned, you know, Turkey, Iran, and the other countries in the Caucasus. So I don't think I don't think the people in Iran are of Semitic stock, even though I don't even know exactly what that means genetically, but I think they're somewhat different. So. Um, but you know, but I certainly didn't see any any overt signs of anti, of so-called you know, quote unquote anti anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. You know, it's definitely anti-Israel, but not not nothing against uh, Jews. You know, speaking you know generally speaking like that. So mm-hmm. so. So you uh, just uh, about. Uh, um a couple of years ago, then you wrote another blog post, uh, North Korea, colon, a case study. So that's a, uh, tell us about, uh, I, I would imagine that it's not easy to get uh, a travel visa to North Korea. So how did that happen for you? Well, uh, you know, amazingly enough, it was very easy getting a tra- really? travel visa. I had more problems going to China because just about every, every tour to North Korea uh, begins in China. And uh-huh. it was more, uh, yeah, China was a much more hassling country. To go to, you know, once I was there, it was okay, but um, yeah, North Korea actually was was um, was pretty easy to go to. Let me just give you some background, and this is an important historical lesson. By the way, Giuseppe, how much you know? I have a lot written down here, and I know we don't have a you know we don't have all the time. Well, in the we world still have either. another uh, forty-five minutes, so plenty of time. Forty-five minutes. Okay, good. I could glance at the clock. Let me just you know, very few people know this about uh, North Korea. Um. You know, at the end of the Second World War. By the way, have you ever? Do you, are you familiar with a book called None Dare Call It Treason? Oh, you hear of course, that? read it many times. By the way, I missed, oh. I did did the math wrong. We have about fifty-five minutes, not forty-five. Oh, fifty-five, great. Okay, so I'm looking at the clock. So it's about you know two ten. <clears throat> so um, yeah, okay, yeah. That was I read that book. Uh, I guess when I was about twenty-two or twenty, about you know twenty-two or twenty-three years old. Mm-hmm. And that really, uh, that just opened my eye. I was always, I was always curious about things. I was always curious about the outside world, about what was going on. I, you know, I, like you, you know, and we were just six years apart, so you pro- were probably brought up, you know, to kind of loathe communism as I was, but I could never understand it. Right. You know, one minute, you know, one minute, you know, where it's communism is a horrible thing, and the next minute, you know, people are making fun of this of the Soviet threat. So I could never figure it out. Yeah, yeah. When I read this book, it put everything in focus. Uh, even though, you know, this guy, John Stormer, who wrote it, he avoids the Jewish angle. Although there are so many, as you know, there are so many Jewish names in it. Right. You know, that, it, <laughs> that it's hard to, you know, not to pick up on it. Exactly. But, you know, he was, basic, he was basically like a, you know, a very kind of uh, church-going Republican conservative type. Yep. But it really was a great book. And, um, you know, when I read that, I didn't realize that, you know, at the time I read that, I believe in all the, all the baloney about World War II, about um, you know that it was a, it was a great moral, you know, righteous oh cause. Yeah, that, yeah, we that, saved the world from you, Hitler, all that all that crap. Exactly. But, you know, when I, you finally wake up to that, everything—it's literally that's the rabbit hole. Once you step through, you can never look at any history the same way again. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And he talks about, as you remember, as I'm sure you remember in that book. He talks about the secret deals that Roosevelt had made, especially at yep. Yalta, yep. that sold out all of these, all of people, all of the people in Eastern Europe to communism. Yep. Half of Europe was sold out to communism, and also China. He talks about China quite a bit. 
yep. and, and, and Cuba. Now, he doesn't talk about Korea that much. So I want to tell you, this is, um, this is very interesting. You know, before, you know, as I said, I went to Korea in uh, 2013. And, you know, a few months before my trip, I uh, started reading up on, on uh, North Korea. Mm-hmm. And I never realized this. Um, I don't. Do you remember the name Dean Rusk by any chance? Of course, he was a former Secretary of State and uh, okay. uh, one of the the liberal uh, think tank guys d- dating all the way back to uh, Kennedy, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow, you you have a good memory because you you were pretty young then. I mean, I was. You were born in like fifty nine, right? I was born in fifty three. Yep, fifty nine. So, mm-hmm. Right. So I have six years on you, and I just I do remember you know when I was small. Uh, that he was the Secretary of State in uh, Kennedy, in the Kennedy and Johnson administration. So I remember the name, but I, I didn't really know anything about the guy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I don't know. I was looking on the web. You know, he was just basically a mealy mouth politician, like he's just yep, one of these exactly. think, yeah. think tank guys. Anyway, he wrote a book, and I just found this on you know when I was when I was researching North Korea, and I just came up in a link, and I, and I I went out. It mentions. It, how he wrote about North Korea in his book. He wrote a book, his uh, autobiography, his memoirs, called As I Saw It. You know, and it's basically it's just one of these boring books, you know, by some nothing, <laughs> right. nothing government. But I'll tell you, this is very interesting. He was the guy who was responsible. Him, him and another guy named Charles Bonesdale. He basically, during World War II, he was a military bureaucrat in Asia. And by, just, by happens, just by chance, he was given the assignment of figuring out what to do with Korea. You know, it wasn't south or north at that time. It was always, it had always been... Right, it was just Korea, absolutely. It was just Korea. And, you know, the Japanese had occupied it since 1910, and as a... One of their terms of surrender was that they had to... Um, they had to vacate Korea. And and so the, so the U.S. government didn't know what to do with Korea, and he was given mm-hmm. the assignment of figuring out, figuring out what to do. So let me just... I'm going to read you, like, a few sentences. Uh... You know, he was given the assignment, and he, this is what he writes on page 124 of As I Saw It. Mm-hmm. We finally reached a compromise that would keep at least some U.S. forces on the Asian mainland, a sort of toehold on the Korean Peninsula for symbolic purposes. You know, I should, should, I should say here that the Army really didn't want to get involved with Korea. Anyway, he says, during a swink, and that's some kind of acronym for some military bureaucracy, during a swink meeting on August 14th, 1945, the same day of the Japanese surrender, Colonel Charles Bonesteel and I retired to an adjacent room late at night and studied intently a map of the Korean Peninsula. Working in haste and under great pressure, we had a formidable task to pick a zone for the American occupation. Uh, then he said, neither Tick, that's the other guy's nickname, neither Tick nor I was a Korea expert, but it seemed to us that Seoul, the capital, should be in the American sector. We also knew that the U.S. Army opposed an extensive area of, of, of occupation. Uh, using a National Geographic map, we looked just north of Seoul for a convenient dividing line, but we could not find a natural geographical line. We saw instead the 38th parallel and decided to recommend that. And that's how the country, and everybody agreed, that the, Stalin agreed to that, everybody was happy with that, and that's how the country was split. They just looked at a map in National Geographic and said, "Hey, this is, uh, you know, this looks pretty neat." Now, how ridiculous is that, right? How that, that, that is real history. Yeah, you know, exactly. And, and Stormer yeah. didn't write about that in his book. 
Um, you know, because it's not because this, you know, uh, Rusk's book was published much later. Right. And that's the true story of how Korea was split. You know, one country, one language, one race, one people, one culture, and they split. They uh, they just rip it in half like that, and they give the northern half to uh, to Joseph Stalin. And, you know, of course, the, the ordinary people had no say in the matter. And, uh, you know, it, this is how ridiculous it is. Like, uh, Korea, you know, the whole, I'm talking about the whole country of Korea. It's, um, it, it, geographically, it's the same exact size as Minnesota, the state of Minnesota. Right. So it's, it, it's, it's like this. Imagine, you know, somebody just coming along and saying, uh, everybody north of I-94, we're going to hand you over to Stalin. Everybody south of exactly. Interstate, everybody south yeah. of Interstate ninety four, you know, Americans are going to occupy it. Yeah, you know, just, just absolutely, totally irrational. Uh, it was just a matter of appeasing the Soviets, right. and that's it. That's how. And and you know what? The situation is the same. Eight almost eighty years later. I mean, really, nothing has changed. So, because um, it, 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 you know, I have to say now, Kim Jong Un, who's the president leader of uh, North Korea, his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, uh, <clears throat> was um, Stalin's point man in North Korea. So, you know, it took him like a couple of years to consolidate power. And then basically he turned it, it, was, he turned it into a, a really hardcore Stalinist communist dictatorship. Right. You know, combined, it's a very strange place, combined with like this divine personality cult of, uh, of him, of Kim Il-sung, his son Kim, uh, Kim, uh, um, Kim Il Jong, and then Kim Jong. It's, it's like a hereditary uh, communist dynasty. There's really nothing like it that's ever happened in the world. Right. So, that's true. Um, so that's what happened. So you know, and I, and then, you know, I was totally ignorant about all this stuff. I don't know about you, uh, Giuseppe, but when I was in school, I never from from first grade uh, to senior year in college, and I was a history major in, in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never heard one word about the Korean War. Um, I had no idea of, of what, it was, what it was all about. You know, they call it the Forgotten War. Yeah, it's, it certainly is forgotten. Right. Uh, it's forgotten for us, but certainly not for the Koreans. I had no idea during that war that we bombed the living, the living hell out of North Korea. We basically, you know, people talk about turning this or, this or that country into a parking lot. That's what we did. We, we massacred. Uh, you must be familiar with, um, what the hell was his name, Curtis LeMay, the Air Force General. Oh, the psychopath, yeah, he wanted to use atomic weapons. During that uh, escapade, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, he was a monster. I mean, just kill everybody, just flatten everybody. Yeah, murder as many as people as you can until until they surrender. That was that was his uh, that was his uh, approach. So we actually, you know, we actually used that country. You know, napalm had been we used uh, napalm a little bit in Japan towards the end of the war. It was a recent invention. By the way, he was he was a really he was one of the guys he, uh, who personally uh, firebombed, like you know. I think we we firebombed a total of sixty seven cities in Japan, so he was he was like personally responsible for burning like hundreds of thousands of people, you know, innocent civilians to death, and then and, and he was like he was in charge of the um, the Air Force mission in, in, during the Korean War, and he did the same thing there. So we slaughtered about one quarter of the civilian population in North Korea, and then people wonder why you know that that uh, the, the, the the government there, you know, really loathes you know our government. Especially, you know, we have, you know, you know, now we're in South Korea conducting military drills, you know. You know, I could totally understand how those people feel. So we, we basically, we burned alive, either burned alive or, um, or killed by conventional bombing or, or, pe- or, you know, the rest of the people just either starved to, to, to death or died of 
disease from everything we we did to North Korea during that war. You know, like twenty five percent of the population. So, um, I, I had you no know, idea you know, that. it's an interesting thing that it just popped in my head. I never really thought about it. I was pretty aware of the atrocities of. Um, the Korean War, because I knew a couple Korean War veterans who would tell me stories and things about it as a kid. And um, but really, uh, the media of the fifties didn't cover it at all. But the, when the essentially the same modus operandi of bombing the shit out of Vietnam was covered by the media in the sixties into the early seventies, and ultimately caused the uh, withdrawal of U.S. troops. So isn't it funny that, you know, in the 50s the, the, uh, with Eisenhower and everybody had this war fatigue that they just ignored it? It's really crazy. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I don't know how it was covered in the 50s. I mean, obviously, I was, I was born in 53, so, you know, I... Uh, uh, you know, and I've never really looked at, at, um, at newspaper accounts or, or uh, you know, media accounts of how it was covered, but I can tell you again, like I tell you this, I never heard a word about it in my entire uh, formal education. So um, you know, when I found that, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, we actually wiped out one fourth of the civilian population. Yep, exactly. So, um, yeah. yeah. So um, you know, I went uh, then. You know, as I was, my first awareness really of of uh, North Korea, the supposed evil of North Korea. I don't know if you remember this, uh, the, when uh, the Pueblo, when they uh, seized the, the uh, U.S. ship, the Pueblo. I the do remember that. Ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was a high school freshman then. That was uh, J- January of 1968. And uh, that was my first awareness of North Korea. Um, it, you know, it was a spy ship. It was sailing like 50, just like two, uh, I think North Korea's territorial claimed waters were like 12 miles from the coast, and they were sailing like two miles outside of that, and it was a spy ship. There was no, there's no question about it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and um, I actually read the the, um, the captain of that ship. His name was Lloyd Booker, and he wrote a book of, you know, years later um, in my story. And you know what happened? Was, okay, they see the ship. The these North North Korean uh, subs and uh, naval vessels came out. And um, it was like, it's a very interesting story of, of that, what happened that morning. Uh, and it ended up, they opened fire on the, on the, uh, on the Pueblo. And uh, meanwhile, you know, Booker and the crew were just frantically front burning stuff, burning all their documents, dumping stuff right. in the ocean. And, bas- and then basically the North Koreans, came, they boarded the ship, and they brought it back to uh, Wonsan, you know, which was a major uh, North Korean port. Mm-hmm. And those guys were, and one, one sailor was killed, uh, you know, when they opened fire, and a, a few were wounded. I think Booker himself was wounded. And uh, anyway, they brought the ship. They brought the ship back to uh, on North Korea. And those guys, I think it was a, a crew of about eighty, eighty-five. They were held prisoner uh, for close to a year. And um, you know, of course, when it happened, it was huge news. But then everybody kind of forgot about it. Then they were freed. I think, in, you know, just before Christmas in December of that year, same year, and. Um, so that was my first um, inkling of you know the evil of uh, mm-hmm. North Korea, and then I, I, and I remember there was a big in the DMZ in the military the militarized zone. Uh, there was an incident in 1976 where um, there was a, like a squad of, of American soldiers and uh, North Korean soldiers. I think the Americans were pruning some trees for a better look to the north, and, they, and a big argument started. 
and these North Korean guys like clubbed and, and axed a, a few American soldiers to death. So you know, so I'm thinking, you know, you know, when I remember watching that on the news, well, I, of course, the actual murder wasn't on the news, but you know, it was a big news item. Then I'm thinking to myself, these fanatical, you know, communist Oriental savages, you know, and um, so anyway, you know, I went to four years later in 19. 19- I went to, um, I traveled around Japan, and I just, you know, I was just curious. I wanted to have a quick look at South Korea. So I took like an overnight ferry from um, Japan to South Korea. And when I was in Seoul, in the capital, I was in South Korea for like five days. And I did like a half day, you know, I signed up for like a half day tour of uh, Mm -hmm. the the, the demilitarized zone. And uh, we went up there from Seoul. It's only like 35 miles away from the border. And we were escorted there by a, a U.S. Army soldier, you know, friendly guy. You know, we chatted a little bit. He was, he was curious about what I was, you know, what I wanted to do. And it, you know, it's a, it's a big build-up. You know, you have to sign this release form. You know, because you're going right to the border. You know, and if anything happens to you, you know, they make it sound very, very scary. And if anything happens, the U.S. Army is not, you know, has no liability. This and that. So we went right up to the DMZ, and the actual border is. Um, there's a bunch of Quonset huts, and there's a, a line running through the middle of them. You can see from the outside that that is the actual border. Really? North and, yeah. So we went into one of the one of the main huts. Um, the North Koreans and the South Koreans every so often they, you know, they met face to face to have talks. So we actually we went into one of, one of the Quonset huts, and there's a microphone on the table, and the microphone wire is the actual border. It runs right to, right through the middle of the table. Wow. So I remember the guy. The, I remember the guy saying, "If you want to, you can walk around to the north side just to say you, just to say you were in North Korea." Uh-huh. So that's what I. <laughs> so that was kind of neat, and yeah. Um, yeah. And then we, we you know, we were, we're peering into the north. I remember seeing like two North Korean soldiers looking at us through binoculars. You know, I'm thinking to myself, "Wow, you know, I'm looking on the other side of the moon. You know, this is the most sealed off country in the world." And um, you know, never in my. Never in my in my wildest dreams did I ever think it would be possible to travel there. So this is in 1980, mm-hmm. and uh, then in 2010, you know, I learned for the first time since the Korean War that they were allowing uh, U.S. citizens and you know ordinary Americans in as tourists. So I said, "Oh wow, man! I just got I just have to see this place." So um, you know, three years later, that became reality. I, I flew to um, I did it like a seven week trip to Asia. Uh, I started off in Cambodia and, and traveled through Vietnam. You know, you know, I really, really enjoyed. You know, Vietnam. We, you know, we have very good relations with them now. I mean, that's a subject for a whole other time. The whole, the whole Vietnam. We should war. do that in the ne- months ahead. I would love to hear your thoughts on how uh, the Vietnamese government chose to just ignore that brutal, uh, genocidal attack by the United States, and suddenly, you know, they're thriving now. It's pretty wild. Yeah, you know, it's very, you know, there's something about the Far Eastern people. They're very forgiving. Um, you know, they're willing to put the past behind them. And that, that was the whole, that was the whole feeling I got when I was in Vietnam, you know. I, I was, uh, but that's a, that's a long story. I was in Vietnam for 16 days, just traveling around by bus and train. Mm-hmm. It was very, very mellow, very enjoyable. I really enjoyed it. Um, but anyway, I, you know, I was in, from there I worked my way. I took a public bus from Vietnam into China. And um, and I worked my way up to, to Beijing, uh, and that's where like 
like like I said earlier, that's where like almost all trips to North Korea originate in Beijing. And for some, I would have loved to take the train from Beijing to Pyongyang, but, but for some reason they had some rule Americans couldn't take the train. We have to fly into um, you know from uh, Beijing to uh, Pyongyang. It's like a ninety-minute flight. It's like flying from New York to Chicago, about the mm-hmm. same distance. So um, anyway, you know, you know, everybody. I booked, you had to, you know, there's no independent travel in uh, North Korea, so you have to go with a group. So I booked with an outfit called uh, YoungPioneerTours.com. Uh, they go to all kinds of crazy places. So I remember we, the day before we were supposed to we were supposed to fly there. There was like about 50 people, and they broke us down into three groups. And I remember we had a lot of, you know, uh, we met in a hotel in a hotel bar in Beijing. You know, they just had a lot of, they just wanted to go over a lot of things, just like an orientation. You know, people had a lot of questions. I mean, you know, I'll admit to, I was a little apprehensive. You know, you don't know what you're getting into when you go to North Korea. Sure. And, you know, I was a little apprehensive. Everybody was a little apprehensive. People had a lot of questions. And because it really, you know, I have to say, it really is a repre- nothing like Iran. North Korea, it really is a repressive, a repressive communist dictatorship. Anyway. <clears throat> basically, they told us, listen, it's a very safe country. Um, the three rules, the three most important rules are, uh, you know, when you get there, uh, no criticism or public or displays of, of uh, disrespect towards the, re- the regime, uh, no distribution of religious literature, and uh, no wandering off on your own to, to meet local people. Mm-hmm. You know, they would be terrified anyway, you know, as I found out later, you, they would, they, you know, they just run away if you, if you even start walking up to them, you know, because there are informers everywhere. So those are the three things. And also they mentioned, you know, if you see people in uniform, ask permission uh, to take photographs first. But after I got there, I found out they were very, very lenient about photos and videos. You know, they were very easy going about that. So that, that really wasn't much of a problem. So, um... And I've got to tell you, it's a very strange feeling flying from, you know, Beijing, the airport in Beijing, you know, as, as you can imagine, it's a huge, bustling airport, you know, P, uh, you know, flights taking off, arriving every couple of minutes from all around the world, you know, very, very, very busy place. So, um, you know, just like any big city like Chicago or New York, you know, just, you know, very, very uh, lively place. So we finally, you know, so this is the big moment. Now we get on it. It was actually, we flew there on air. Korea, uh, the North Korean airline. And like I said, it's a 90-minute flight. And it's a very strange feeling. You're coming into Pyongyang a- Airport. And, um, Giuseppe, you still there? I'm here. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. I heard something weird on my phone. Okay, I thought maybe we got cut off. Okay. So we fly into, you know, we, we you leave the uh, big bustling airport in Beijing, and we land in Pyongyang, and, um, the airport, there were like three, um, small airplanes like parked at odd angles on the tarmac you know really like a real ghost town atmosphere <laughs> so um you know we land and we uh we get off the plane we walk into the uh into the uh terminal building and you know and compared to beijing it's like this little it reminded me of like a little dinky greyhound bus station like in a small city somewhere in the states just a, a really small Building, although I think they've built a larger uh, in, in the intervening years. I think they've they've constructed a, a much bigger airport. But anyway, when we went there, like I said, it was a really small place, and um, and there were like two flights arriving and two flights departing that day, including ours. So there's like nothing. 
really nothing, no, you know, and I th- probably the other flights were domestic flights. So, um, it, you know, it, it just had that very kind of uh, isolated atmosphere, like nothing is going on here. And um, there were five, I'll tell you a little story, you know, after we, after we were told, you know, not to take, you know, to ask permission um, <clears throat> to take photographs if you see anybody in uniform. So what does mm-hmm. this one American woman do? She was, she was also in a group. She was a nice lady, actually. But as soon as we get in the terminal building, she takes out her camera. She starts snapping pictures. I'm saying, holy Jesus Christ. I mean, can't you follow simple instructions? Right. So there were like, there were like five uniform, uh, I guess, I don't know if they were police or military, just standing silently against the wall in the terminal building. And one of them walks all over to her, and I'm saying, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? <laughs> so he just taps her on the shoulder. And he puts his, you know, he didn't speak any English. He puts up his hand, like, stop. And, you know, she, she put her camera away, and that was the end of it. Nothing happened. So, you know, um, and, and I had a, you know, I had a feeling there was something just relaxing about the place. I said to myself, you know, n- nothing's going to, just behave yourself. Nothing's going to happen here. So, um, you know, so we're at the airport, and then we, eventually a bus showed up, and, and they took us to um, the main hotel in, um, in uh, Pyongyang, I, I, maybe it was a 15, 20-minute ride. And uh, we, we just walked into the lobby, and uh, it was a pretty lively place, actually. And there were other tour groups checking in, checking out. There were a lot of Chinese businessmen. So, you know, I'm saying to myself, wow, I can't believe it, man. I'm in North Korea. I mean, this is just just, just inc- an incredible feeling, you know. And, well, again, kidding, I said, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, but, I, you know, I just felt totally relaxed. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure... Um, you know, I know Korean people, uh, Korean business people from Long Island, you know, and a lot of them have come here. You know, I, you know, they don't belong here. They should have never come here. But that's, you know, pushing yep, aside that exactly. issue, yeah, yeah. putting aside that issue for the moment. I mean, they are a, they're a respectful, they're a polite, you know, well-behaved people. I mean, I'm sure you know some Koreans, right? That, that yes. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, they're, 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 they're pretty good people. They're not, they're not violent people. Okay. So, um. And they're the same kind of people, the same race, same way over there, you know, uh, civilized, industrious people. So anyway, we got to the hotel, and uh, we met our two uh, tour guides, uh, Choi. It was, we, it was a woman and a man. They were North Korean. They both spoke English, very good mm-hmm. English. And uh, Choi was the woman, and Juan was, was, was the man. And, we, and, we, and there was a... Uh, there was a there was an area on the main floor of the hotel. There was a bar there, so we we all kind of got acquainted. Uh, like I said, they split us up into three groups of about fifteen, sixteen people. You know, we're just chatting, and we we got to meet. And this is the funny thing too. You know, I had no idea. The the guy who was leading it, who was uh, who worked for Young Pioneer Tours, he was American. His name is Chris White. He was a um, he was an underwater uh, demolitions uh, specialist. I guess in that part of the world, and he was our tour leader. Here we have an American. American leading a tour in North Korea, you know, and uh, pretty much, you know, directing things, you know, with mm-hmm. Choi and Juan. So, you know, that was a big shock, you know, yeah. an American, lead, le- American leading a tour in North Korea. So, um, we, um, you know, we got acquainted and everything. It was a nice hotel. The hotel, by the way, was, um, it was the one place where you could kind of wander around on your own, do what you, do what you wanted to do. You know, once you stepped out, you really were not allowed to leave, you know, without, uh, it just wasn't permitted. You couldn't really stray from the group. But in a hotel, you could do what you wanted to do. And, 
you know, on the, on the main floor, like I said, it was the, the check-in. Um, there was a bar there. There was a, uh, there was a gift shop, and there were two bars and restaurants. And then in the basement, there was like a recre- recreational area, um, and like a, bowl, a couple of bowling lanes and uh, mm-hmm. pool tables, that that sort of thing. And there were there was a bar and a restaurant also, like on the, I think the 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 hotel was like forty-seven stories high. And I think, as I as I recall, there was a uh, a bar and a restaurant somewhere like maybe the twenty fifth floor, and also on the very the very top floor. So you could, as I said, you were free to wander around. But once you once you were with the group, you pretty much had to hang together as a group. Mm-hmm. So um, we did a lot of you know. Let me just say this to you: know, people have this is the way that the, the lying Jewish media works. You know, all you see whenever news uh, North Korea is in the news, you see pictures of uh, goose stepping troops. <laughs> you know, that's right. Yeah, right. that's all. That's all people know from what they see on the television screen. Goose stepping troops, these huge missiles. Yep. You know, on parade. That's all they know. You know, the fact of the matter is this: that they, yes, there are those parades three times a year on Kim Il Sung's birthday, Kim Jong Il, uh, Kim Jong Il's birthday, and on uh, on what they call Victory Day, the end of uh, that wasn't really a victory; it was an armistice, uh, uh, July twenty seventh. 1953. That was the day the Korean War ended. Those that's those are the only times you're going to see parades like that. No, the rest of the time you just in Pyongyang. Um, you know, it was kind of a, a worn out capital. Um, you know, a lot of potholes, apartment buildings. You know, again, you have to remember this. This whole everything was flattened in the Korean War. So there's a lot of like sterile apartment buildings and a lot of paint peeling. You know, you had mm-hmm. kind of an old, old beat up look. You know. Uh, but you, you, you know the kind of people you see on the street—they're just ordinary people, you know, dressed m- mostly in drab clothes. But you know, another thing that was interesting, though, a lot of people, a lot of the women were wearing like beautiful Korean folk dresses. Mm-hmm. You know, they—they they, they seemed to wear them a lot. You know, and they were really there was a big difference between North Korea and South Korea. I mean, they really kind of preserved uh, a Korean culture in the North as opposed to the South. Like Seoul, you know, the capital of South Korea, it's just a big. It's like an American city, very westernized, very, um, you know, really not an interesting place. But North Korea was different that way because uh, you saw a lot of a pure Korean culture. Well, John, let me ask you this. There was, um, even back uh, in the second term of uh, the, the traitor Obama, um, there was that the Jew media was talking about how North Koreans, they're all starving, there's no food and all that. It's such a, a, a oppressive regime. And you go in there and, and you didn't see that at all, did you? I didn't see it. Now, the story, you know, I did some reading. I, from what I read, the, the Pyongyang, the people that live in Pyongyang have it the best in the country. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, no, I didn't see anybody like really thin, even in the countryside, too. I mean, I don't really know... Again, you don't know if people are really hungry. I've read accounts of that. I, I can't say that that's true or false. I just don't know. Okay. An- another, another thing I've read, and I, again, I don't know if this is true or false, is that people, the people that are most like subservient and um, most supportive of the regime are the ones that are allowed to live in Pyongyang. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas, whereas, you know, the rebel types, the people who can think for themselves, uh, they actually take those people and their entire families, like the next of kin, and they move them to a certain part of the country. They want, they want to breed them out. I don't know if that's bullshit. I really don't know, but that's what uh-huh. I read. Okay. Um, but I didn't see it. I mean, I didn't see anybody. Um, 
going hungry or anything like that. You know, then again, I got to say, I don't, you know, you're not, you're not allowed to, re- to go into supermarkets or anything like that. Uh, we, um, as a tour group, we ate in, you know, certain designated places. Uh, there was a very nice dining hall in that, in that hotel and the other places that we stayed. You know, and the food was good. You know, nothing, nothing uh, really uh, outstanding, but it was, it, was, it was pretty good food. Um, but I don't think, I, I don't know what the ordinary people have to eat it. I don't know if they, you know, if they have to stand in long lines or if, if uh, like, there's a shortage of, of meat or fish or anything like that or, you know, vegetables. I really can't say. You know, and you, you can't go by the, what the media says. You know, anything's possible over there. I'm, I'm reading right now uh, that they're having a lot of problems because a lot of people are going hungry. I know it might be true. It might not be. Uh-huh. So okay. I didn't see it. I'll, I'll, I'll just say that. I didn't see it okay. with my own uh-huh. eyes. So, um, and, um, you know, let me just say, you know, speaking about the Korean War, I don't know. This is the kind of thing that, you, that the media never covers. Um, are you familiar with Pete McCloskey? I think his real name is Paul McCloskey. He was a congressman from California. Oh, absolutely. I remember him. Mm-hmm. Oh, you do remember him. Good. Yeah. He was, um, uh, he's, he's, I think he's still alive. He's got to be like 95, 96 now. A- anyway, he, you know, he was like, to me, he was like a, a genuine American hero. He fought in the Korean War, you know, just very quietly. He enlisted as a Marine. And, um, <clears throat> and um, he went there and he fought in the war. Uh, actually, he has a book. He has a kind of a big book. I think it's called "The Taking of Hill 610." He recounts his uh, times there, you know, as a soldier and everything. Anyway, he went. He returned to North Korea the, the year after I did. I think he was about 86 years old at the time. This is the kind of thing you never see in the media. And this was. I'm, I'm holding the article that was reprinted right now. It was reprinted from. You know, he's from California, so this got some coverage in a newspaper called the San Francisco Gate. And the headline, I'm looking at it right now, War Hero Pete McCloskey, back from reunion in North Korea. And um, he was on there in some kind of mission to, like, improve, you know, to, like, uh, improve relations with them and to build up some kind of uh, uh, commercial trade, that that sort of thing. Anyway, by chance, he he was in a, a Korean War Museum, and he ran into a, uh, an, old, an elderly uh, North Korean general who had also fought in the war, and who also was wounded. And, um, you know, neither of them, sp- you know, he didn't speak any Korean, he didn't speak any English, but uh, there was a, a young Korean female soldier who spoke English, and they translate, and she translated, and they had an interesting conversation, you know, they were just kind of reminiscing about the, their uh, w- uh, war experiences. Mm-hmm. So at one point, at one point, they both became very emotional, and they just embraced, and, um, and, and they vowed that they're, their grandchildren and their great grandchildren uh, would never fight against each other, you know. So you know, it just shows you the human side of these people. They don't want war. You know, it's exactly. very touching. I I, yeah. I read about that. You know, a tear came to my eye. You know, it's just very, um, it was very touching. You know, you know, two old war veterans and you know vowing that, you know, they never they never want to see their grandchildren or their great grand grandchildren fighting each other. So um, but that's the kind of thing you never see that on on Fox News or CNN, all these other scumbag, uh, uh, you know, uh, television stations. And another thing I want to mention also is, um, I, you know, I did some research, and this is um, before and after, 
and, and here and there you would you would come across a an account of what it was like to travel as a tourist in North Korea, and everything was just a lot of baloney. You know, they make it sound like the um, like the guides are like drill sergeants. You know, and you're you're, you're all together in a tight pack. You have to follow uh-huh. rules. You know, it's just just a lot of crap, and how the rooms are bugged and, and this and that, and how you everybody's the tourists are, are scared about being arrested. You know, and that's just that's such a bunch of crap. I only found one article. Again, I, I reprinted it. I have it right in front of me here. Uh, it was about and this. It was about three Americans who were working in China, and they visited North Korea the year, the year after I was there. Actually, maybe it was two years after. Right? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Uh, and it says U. They ran in the Pyongyang Marathon, and the uh, headline is "U.S. Runners Defy Travel Warning on North Korea." You know, because of the State Department travel warning, you know, well, it makes it sound like you're out of your mind to go there. You're going to be kidnapped. You know, any kind of minor infraction, you're going to be arrested. You could disappear there. You know, make sure you notify uh, next of kin before you go there. Of, notify the Swedish embassy in case you disappear so they can look at, you know, all this scam-mongering stuff. And this is the only article I came across that, uh, these, it was about three guys, as I said, they ran the Pyongyang Marathon, and, um, <clears throat> And they had a really good time there. You can look this up. It's, it was printed in USA Today, April 17th, 2015. U.S. Runners mm-hmm. Defy Travel Warning on North Korea. And, uh, and there's, a, uh, there's a photograph also. There was a woman from Missouri who ran in the marathon. She placed third, and she's on the podium. You know, and the whole, um, you know, with the, two, with the first and second, uh, you know, the winners of the marathon, you know, two women, and she, she, along with the two others, got got a standing ovation from the whole stadium. So oh, these people, everything was about fr- everything was about friendship, you know. No. Um, you know, nobody wants you know these people don't want to go to war with us. They don't, um, you know, the whole business of of hating us and and, and everything. It's just, it's just such a bunch of nonsense. So anyway, you know, just to go over what, what happened, what 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 we did when we were in the, it was like an, as I recall. I think it was exactly a week. It was just a week-long tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were on a bus. It was an old bus. No air, you know, it was the summertime. It was August. And um, it was hot out, you know, no air conditioning. <laughs> and the bus, you know, there was a, probably a fuel, fuel shortage, so the bus was just going like 35 miles an hour everywhere. And, uh, and I remember one of the, the um, as I said, we had two North Korean guides, English-speaking, and uh, the, the man, uh, Juan, he just sat down next to me. He was just very curious about the very sweet guy, very kind of soft-spoken guy, and just like very curious about the outside world. Uh, you, know, you know, what's New York like? Um, you know, do you have any children? Uh, you know, he asked to see pictures of my kids. You know, I showed him. And uh, you know, what's what's your job? What, what's what's you know, what is it like? You know, traveling around America and stuff. Just very. You know, because obviously they're not allowed to travel anywhere, so they're very just very curious about the outside world. <clears throat> so um, that that was um, that's what we, you know we would we would just chat with them like in between rides from here, uh, going you know here to there. And let me just say when, when we were in Pyongyang, you know we were there for I guess two full days. Uh, we visited a hospital. Uh, they brought us right into the cancer ward of the hospital. I couldn't believe it. They were letting us. Look at people being treated. You know, some of them were only like half dressed, and I, I couldn't believe it. They were, and you know, the hospital looked like something out of the 1950s. And I remember, um, 
they brought out a doctor, and of course, you know, Troy was translating, and he was just, you know, very quiet guy, just explaining a lot of things uh, about, you know, how they treat cancer patients there. Uh, they brought us to a, we went to a movie studio out just outside the city. They actually had the Pueblo docked in the, uh, there's a river called the Tedong River, which is, runs right through Pyongyang. But unfortunately, you know, I would have loved to go on board and just uh, to, to visit that. But unfortunately, they were like refurbishing it. They were getting it ready to move uh, to another to somewhere else. So mm-hmm. it was kind of it was off limits for the time we were there. But we could see it. You know, I took I took a couple of pictures of it. It was right there, and right in the river there, sitting there. Uh, we went to um, we went to a school, like a high school, and. Um, there were some like musical groups and and uh, and and choral groups, and they put on a nice uh, a concert for us. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, we, we kind of wandered around the school. We were just watching. Uh, we were watching, uh, you know, like high school students. Just um, I remember there was one uh, room where they were doing calligraphy, uh, Korean calligraphy, and um, and there were other ones playing like a, a board game. So it was kind of neat, just like wandering around the school. Um, we went to an amusement park. There was a, there was a big amusement park in the city at night, on one of the evenings that, that we were there, and that was that was kind of nice because you could see people enjoying. It was it looked like an American amusement park, uh-huh. you know, people enjoying themselves. So that was kind of nice to see. Um, and we we went out of town. We 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 went to we visited a water bottling plant. Uh, we went to we we stopped. There was a town. We went to a town called Nampo on the coast. You know, people were at the beach, and um, uh, they were having a volleyball game. So they, everybody, they invited all of us to play vo- um, uh, our group to play volleyball with them. You know, so that was, um, you know, but of course the guys have to be there. You know, you can't do this kind of thing on your own. So that was good. One of the most interesting things is we went to the DMZ from the north side, mm-hmm. um, and that was like a completely different. From, it was much more relaxed, believe it or not, <laughs> on the north side. And as we're approaching the DMZ, uh, I actually had a picture of myself taken with a North Korean soldier there. And um, that I put that up on my website. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But uh-huh. what, was interesting, what was interesting is we were getting close to the DMZ. They had these huge columns, these concrete columns on either side of the road. And uh, Chris explained to us, they said that, you know, like they really, just in case of, of a South Korean or an American invasion, they can pull these columns down to... Uh, to stop any tanks coming across the border, mm-hmm. so that was kind of uh, that was kind of an interesting sight. Um, then, um, yeah, so I really enjoyed the DMZ from the north side. It's a big museum there, you know, and you could see everything uh, from the from the North Korean point of view. And um, probably the, one of the most memorable things was back when we got back to Pyongyang. We went to the what they call the Ararang Mass Games. Uh, it's a huge event that takes place in the summertime. I, I would describe it as a cross between the Nuremberg Rally and Super Bowl halftime show, but not, not, uh-huh. not, not degenerate in any way, like a real spectacular event. And it was just, you know, there were all kinds of um, choral groups, uh, uh, kind of a circus, circus acts, all kinds of stuff. It was indoors, but it was very, very... It was like a pure expression of the Korean soul. We were, there was something, everybody in our group, we were just blown away by it. Like I said, it had that kind of element 
that was probably the same as the as the Nuremberg rallies, just purely, totally patriotically proud uh, Korean uh, event, and um, and the whole place was sold out. You know, we had uh, yeah pretty good seats, mm-hmm. and um, I, t- I took a lot of videos of that, and um, I put that up on the uh, on, on the site that I just want to mention. So, but you know, mixed in with all this also is. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the divine personality cult of Kim Il Sung and Kim Jong Il. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see, you see, they're they're like gods there. That's why they don't want any kind of any other kind of religious uh, material uh, distributed. They they are the religion, and uh, you see their posters everywhere, their pictures everywhere. Wow. I mean, it's, it it, it kind of wears you down after a while. I mean, the kind of propaganda that these people are, are subjected to. And, um, you know, you see, you know, you know, walking around the older people, you know, you can see they really had a really hard life. I've never seen faces like this anywhere else in the world. You know, the middle-aged and the older people, their faces are just worn out. Um, but then you stop and realize, you know, I stopped and thought to myself, you know, these people, everybody you see in this country, either their parents or their grandparents were either killed in the Korean War or they lost everything they had, you know, and they had to start from scratch. So they, they've been through they've been through hell they've been through a lot of hard times, right? But you know, not so much not the younger people so much though. You know, as a matter of fact, one of the main squares in Pyongyang we saw we saw kids rollerblading, and I remember Chris telling us he said just a couple of years ago you would have never seen this, you know. So they they are very slowly uh, they want to kind of adapt. To, you know, to some of the, you know, some of the Western fashions, which are, you know, which are not degenerate in any way. And of course, there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with rollerblading. So, uh, you know, things, I had the feeling that, you know, things, uh, you, you know, that, like I said, the Koreans are, are industrious people. And I had the, I, I kind of had the feeling that the regime really wanted to kind of reform a little bit to make life a little bit more livable for the people. Mm-hmm. But they were doing it very slowly. But I really don't know. I just had that, that feeling. Um, so anyway, after I got home, you know, I said, you know, while I was there, I said to myself, why can't we be friends with these people? You know, I mean, the people that you come across, the happiest people there are the people that work in the tourist industry, the people in the hotels, in the restaurants we stopped at, you know, they're all dressed in the beautiful Korean folk costumes, very, very sweet. And, uh, you know, I said, why can't we be friends with these people? You know, there's no, there's no reason in the world that we have to, you know, be enemies now, why can't we, we do, th- you know, why can't we just, um, you know, put the past behind us and, and like, uh, you know, become friends, just like we did with the Vietnamese, you know, and, and then what's really preventing that, I'm sure, is, is just the fact that we have such a large military presence in the South, you know, always, uh, you know, conducting, you know, especially once a year, they conduct these big drills, you know, you know the American air uh, pilots just flying right off that coast, menacing them. Now, what the hell is it all about? You know, what, what the hell are we even doing in South Korea? So, uh, you know, I think it was the dream of them to just reunify someday. And, it, and uh, there's a, actually, there's a big, beautiful statue in Pyongyang of a uh, very tall granite statue of, like, two women uh, reaching out and, meet, and their hands reach out over the road. And right in the middle, they're holding a, a map, uh, like a, there's a little, it's like it's like a circular granite thing with a map of Korea in it, uh, showing like a. It's called a reunification reunification statue. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is the dream 